0: Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, that's always our prayer. Show us Christ. Wherever we are in your word, show us Christ. Wherever we are in life, show us Christ. Do your work. Your powerful, glorious work. In our lives today. Thank you for your church. Your gathered church. Coming before you in worship and praise. We rejoice, Lord, that we get to see the lives of those changed. And then in seeing those lives changed in obedience to you, they come to the waters of baptism. Help us as a church to be committed to discipling people who come to you. To watching the grave clothes be removed from them as they walk through this life with the rest of us. We rejoice at the privilege to be able to celebrate that with Ella and Shane and Gilda today. We pray, Lord, you give us a burden for those outside these walls, those in our community who don't know you as Lord and Savior, and that we might boldly proclaim the gospel wherever we go so that we might see these waters troubled even more. And we pray for your church today, gathered around the world, worshiping you. May preachers be faithful to your word. May lives be changed, even in here today. And, Father, we know there are members of this body today who can't be with us. They're in the hospital or homesick. They're shut-ins. They just can't get out. And we pray, O Lord, that you would wrap your arms around them and care for them. Use us as a church body to minister to them. Give us a burn, Lord, for those who are suffering, particularly in our fellowship. We pray for our nation, the crises going on around the world. We pray for the leaders of our nation who make decisions every single day that affect our lives. And so today we lift up our president and his family. You keep them safe. Give him wisdom. Vice president, his family. Lord, we read in the paper this morning about our mayor, and we thank you for him and his commitment to this city His leadership over us in this community, we pray for him and his family to give him strength. For our police chief, our fire chief, all those, Father, that you've placed above us in positions of authority, we we pray for them, that you would guide them, that you would open their hearts to your truth, that you would bless their families, that you would uh, give them wisdom in the decisions they make, and we thank you for them, too. We rejoice that you have given us your word. You've spoken to us. Speak to us again this day through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 11. Or turn on your Bible. You used to not be able to say that. Some of you turn on your Bibles. Some of you just turn in your Bibles. But whatever you're doing, turn. it. Turn. I'm old-fashioned when Pastor Greg's preaching. I'm down down there tur- turning pages, you know. And my wife turns hers on and flips through it there. And I, On her phone. She finds it about the time Pastor Greg finishes reading the scripture. (laughs) I'm kidding, honey. My mom just turned 92. She has an iPad. She's reading the Bible. Do you have it with you today? Oh, okay. All right. She brought the real thing today. For the past couple of weeks, we've. uh past couple of weeks, this is the fifth sermon on John chapter 11. Uh, for a number of weeks. For the past month, we um, have been looking at this just wonderful chapter, and it's wonderful in, in many, many ways. Pastor Greg preached the first couple of messages, the first one being an overview, and. Then he got us through verse sixteen, and then the last three weeks we've been working through seventeen through forty-four, where we'll get to today. You can hold me to that. And the last two Sundays we've been we've looked at Martha's encounter with Jesus from verses seventeen to twenty seven and following the burial of her brother Lazarus. And at the end of this passage we saw last week after Jesus speaks these words to her do you believe this? We have her response. She said to him, Yes, Lord. Verse 27 I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. And following that there is this Glorious display of who God is in verses 28 through 44. I'm going to break it up um, into three little sections. First, we'll see the mourners um, gathering and coming and going. And then we'll see the, the approach of everybody to Lazarus' tomb. And then we'll look at the miracle itself. Let's look at the text though first. When she had said this, she went. Uh, well, let me stop there. That, that's really interesting, and you know, there's no commentary or anything like that. Um, she says, "Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, you're the Son of God who's coming into the world." Jesus doesn't respond, as far as we know. There's, there's no, he doesn't make any comments about it Uh, he doesn't say anything about her confession of faith there as far as we know I mean there are some things that weren't said that we know were said but that uh, that being said uh, we don't know that there's any commentary here she just says what she believes and took off running yes Lord I believe who you are when she said this she went I just, I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, yes, Jesus, I believe who you are. Anything else? Although it's still incomplete and God's still doing a work in her life. So when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See? How he loved him. Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. Stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha said, Whoa, we're not going to do that. No, she didn't say that. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord... By this time, there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but... I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen and strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him, and let him go. Wow. So Mary races back up the Jericho Road to tell her sister. A house full of Jews there, mourning with her. We know it's full. Verse 19, Many of the Jews had come to... Martha and Mary to console them. And verse 31, we just read, when the Jews who were with her in the house, so we know there were there are many, and 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 some of them probably didn't have the best feelings about Jesus. He was good friends to Lazarus and Mary and Martha, that family. But so she secretly, the Bible says, she secretly goes to tell her sister that the teacher they. It's interesting these women can call Jesus the teacher because women normally weren't taught by rabbis, only the men were. That wasn't the case with these two women or with Jesus. She says, the teacher wants to see you. And that's one of the things that we don't have recorded. We don't have anywhere where Jesus says to Martha, I want to see you. Sister, we don't know that until Martha says it to to Mary. The language is dramatic. When she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. Bolting from the house, it seems like. Martha probably behind her. I think she was older. We don't really know. Mary shows those who's mourning with her, there's uh, there's been this, because she said it to her secretly, so there's this tremendous change in in temperament, overwhelmed by grief, and all of a sudden she hears that Jesus is here and it changes her entire being. What's her destination? Well, Jesus has parked himself on the Jericho Road outside of the village, for a while, there are reasons why he didn't come. We don't know all the reasons. We, we don't know for sure any of them. But quite possibly, he didn't go to greet them at the house. He just didn't want to cause a commotion, showing up at the house. There could be also that he wanted to draw Mary and Martha to himself, so that they could go immediately to the tomb. Jesus seems uh, very. Um, intentional about getting to that tomb, that's the reason he's there, to confront death, death that's an enemy to God. Jesus is willing and in a hurry to confront it. He did not want any delay. So Mary leaves and the people go with her. Apparently, funeral etiquette back in those days meant... That you know, wherever the the uh, grieving one is going, all the mourners go with them. The Bible tells us, thinking that she's going to the tomb to grieve over her brother again. They're thinking, why is she going back there? But that's not the case. She's going to Jesus, and they follow her to him. You're going if if you're gonna. Comfort some. If you're going to be a comforter or you're going to be a whaler, you're going to be a, a a professional whaler, as some of them were, then you've you, you got to go where the grieving ones are. And so they follow her, chase her down the road. think they're chasing her down the road to the grave, but that's not the case. But Jesus had all this planned all along. He got them all out of the house. Here they are, traipsing out to Jesus, lots of people, I suppose. And verse thirty two Now, when she comes to Jesus, she fell at him. Some people declare it's an act of worship. I'm not. I wouldn't think it's an act of worship. I think it's probably more of an act of emotion, because that's about all we're seeing in these particular verses, just sheer emotion from her. It's true that every gospel reverence, <laughs> reference to Mary has her sitting at the feet of Jesus. And surely Martha's close behind her. She just falls at His feet. Thought of these two women running in the same direction. Both had built their hopes on Jesus' coming before Lazarus died. Both had felt confidence that that He was going to come and save their brother's life before He died. Both were bitterly disappointed that Jesus did not come. And while He was sick, they both had probably said these words to each other. Oh, if Jesus was only here, He could heal Him. If Jesus was here, they probably said that to each other over and over and over. And she repeats... Same thing her sister said. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They'd said it to each other so much, they both said the same words to Jesus. Once more, the thought of Jesus could have. Already healed so many strangers in his ministry. How could he neglect, quite possibly, his best friend outside of his 12 disciples? One he professed to love so much. How could that happen? How could he allow that to happen? And so they approached the tomb. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved, greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? So much emotion in these next few verses, even from Jesus. It's really one of the most emotion-packed few verses of Scripture I can recall. Crowded, the house has become surprised They begin to understand that Jesus is the object of Mary's interest, not going to the tomb again. And at the same time, they continue their expressions of grief by their wailing and their sobbing and their bawling and their groaning. Maybe even some physical gyrations and all of this. There's some confusing words here in verse uh, 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word for weeping there of the people is kleo. That means a loud, a loud wailing, a loud, a loud weeping. Tears might not even be involved in this sort of, of weeping. You've seen it on the news. It's the, that, that Middle Eastern wailing and weeping when there's crises or death and destruction. You've seen that on the television. It's the same thing. And it says, Jesus, deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. That's the hard part. That we we soften the meaning of this in the English language, in the English translation, the word most likely, and deeply moved there, most likely means that Jesus was angered. That word is literally used of a horse snorting with anger. But well, what was the cause of all that? It could mean that he was angry over seeing what sin and death does to people. Or he was simply angered over death itself. Jesus is troubled. He's indignant about the pain and death and sorrow that sin causes. He's angered here. Other translations, other languages translate this better outrage in turmoil, most likely over what sin has caused. And you see that in the lives of the mourners. You see that by what happened to Lazarus. You see that in the sisters. Sin is ruling their lives at this point. And he's outraged over that. These men and women are grieving like pagans. Paul, talk, Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, when he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. These people are grieving as if they had no hope. These people are grieving like pagans. Quite possibly Mary and Martha is the ones that he's referring to more than any. He knows they're believers. Profound grief is natural, even for believers. But grief that degenerates into despair... pours out its loss as if there's no resurrection whatsoever. When grief gets to that, when grief gets to despair like that in the life of a believer, it's an it's a, 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 a unspoken denial of the resurrection itself. Be careful. And he's greatly troubled. That's different. But I love. About Jesus. We see so much of his humanity in this as well, which is great for us. It's great for his church. We love his humanity because it means he understands us. And if I could take it a little side road, that hasn't changed. Jesus didn't give up his humanity when he ascended into heaven. Jesus, all divine and all human, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Granted, he's in a glorified body, but he is still human, even in heaven. J.C. Rao says this, Let us carefully remark that our Lord never changes. He's the same yesterday, day, and forever. At this moment, at God's right hand, He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and can understand tears as well as ever. Our great high priest is the very friend that our souls need, able to save as God, able to feel as man. In Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Do I have that slide, J.C.? Since, we, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's troubled, but he knew what was going to happen. He could have said, hey, everybody, calm down. Just wait one minute. (laughs) Something really cool is going to happen. There's way too much weeping here since I'm going to raise him. And it's going to be super. Just watch. He could have smiled. He could have said to himself, all this energy from mourning and It's not even necessary. I'm going to raise Lazarus. In a few minutes, he's going to be standing here talking to us. he have said those things and calmed things down. But he chose to feel what the grieving people were feeling. The Greeks of that day didn't think that way. They had a term for God, apatheia. Where we get our English word, apathetic. Without pathos or without suffering or without passion. God, the the Greek definition of God is that He is not concerned with our suffering. He is not concerned by our emotion. He's not moved by our emotion. That wasn't true with Jesus. He let Himself care troubled by all of this. He wanted to understand that pain that you feel, that you will feel when you stand beside the grave of a person that you love more than anything. He wanted to understand that pain, what it felt like when you watched that casket lowered in the grave. And He does. He knows it. He understands it. I came across a great hymn called Where High the Heavenly Temple Stands. I would love to read all six verses to you, but I'm going to spare you. you, they're, They're marvelous. But one of the verses says this. In every pang... That rends the heart the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief. To the sufferer sends relief. So, most likely speaking to Mary and Martha in verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Wants to know where the tomb is. Wait, he's Jesus. He already knew where the tomb was. (laughs) Could be several reasons for that as well. He knows all things, and so he knew where Lazarus was buried. We want any of the Jews there, anybody to have any understanding that he planned where the burial will be, so this could be some, some bizarre masquerade to show that Jesus can resurrect the body. Quizel, old, old um, commentary, says Christ does not ask out of ignorance any more than God did when he said, Adam, where are you? <laughs> Jesus knew where the grave was. So there must be reason that he asked for it. He didn't want those Jews to think that he was part of some bizarre burial scheme. So he asks. And his, his, his emotional threshold appears to be at the bursting point. So they head toward the tomb and the emotion even cranks up more as they walk toward the tomb. So you see, that the world is an enemy of God. The world is at enmity with God. And yet that same world that is God's enemy is also the object of God's love. And so these two conflicting great emotions are building up into Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's not surprising that we read now, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. You learned that when you were in Sunday school at age three. It's like you were going to stump your parents. You know, you come home from Sunday school and say, Hey, Mom, I bet you don't know what the shortest verse of the Bible is. But that word weep or weep is not the same word when it's talking about all those women that were weeping in the previous verse. It's It's a tearful sobbing. Jesus is shedding tears. It's not that loud wailing we were referring to. It's two different words. And His weeping clearly is over the tragic consequences of sin. It's not because he's grieving for his dead friend. He's getting ready to raise him. <laughs> he's going to be alive in a few moments. He didn't shed tears for Lazarus. Jesus' weeping seems at the, near the end of his own earthly ministry. It seems to him that the best of his followers have learned very little. Sin is a painful thing as Jesus watches it. They still mourn as if sin wins. They're mourning as if they're despairing. They're mourning as if there's no victory in the Son of God. And He doesn't give up on them. He will lovingly triumph over their grief. Praise the Lord. J.C. Ryle also says we may draw great comfort from the thought that the Savior in whom we are bid to trust is one who can weep and is as able to feel as he is able to save. This shows that he who, as Paul says, is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him is able to feel as he is able to save. The one who can hunger, the one who can thirst and eat and drink and speak and walk and groan and be tired and and wonder and feel indignant and rejoice like any of us, yet without sin. Above all, he can weep. We sing another hymn here from time to time. It has even more verses I wish I could share with you, but I'll just share one. Depth of mercy. There for me the Savior stands, shows His wounds and spreads His hands. God is love. I know, I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. And that weeping comes to two different conclusions, the Jews that are around him. And chances are John offers these two conclusions because neither of them is right. Uh, verse 36. So the Jew says, see how he loved him. Oh, isn't that sweet? See how he loved him. Almost like this situation beyond Jesus' ability. He's over his head now. Sadness, weeping has overcome him. Healing he can do. He can make blind people to see, but this is just too much for him. This is beyond his ability. Hopeless situation that he can't solve. And we see that in the next verse as well. But some, the others said, Could not he open the eyes of the blind man? Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Seems to be some deep-seated animosity, which may also be a part of Jesus' tears. Religious enemies of Jesus had to be there. So close to Jerusalem. They've heard of the grief and regret of Mary and Martha that Jesus waited, he didn't come, he delayed to take a wonderful time to impugn his reputation just one more time. They were wrong on both counts. Yeah, because it, it, on some level, they are right. Jesus did heal the blind man. He could have prevented Lazarus from dying. But his weeping goes much deeper than that. That's not why he's weeping. It's unbelief. And we see that reason of unbelief wells up in using that same term again in the next verse. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. That's where we see the miracle. John Calvin said, Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death which he has overcome stands before his eyes. after a discouraging attitude of the Jews, Jesus, like Calvin says, heads there with some determination to get to that tomb so that these faithless companions, these people who've wallowed in their despair long enough can see a display of the glory of God like never seen before. Approaches the tomb. He's troubled by what's going on. Probably some identifying inscription there over the tomb of whose tomb it is. And it's been four days ago. It was sealed with some, uh, whatever they used back then to seal a tomb. The crowd is approaching. They have no idea they're about to witness something spectacular. So he says to the cemetery keepers there, the, the, the guys that work at the cemetery, I don't, there probably weren't guys that worked at the cemetery. I just made that up. But Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, I'm near a grave. A guy's been dead four days. And somebody says, take away the The door to the stone, I'm looking at the guy next to me. So I can see these guys like, okay, who's going to do that? Because we know when that happens, it's going to smell. Plus, there, you know, the Jewish restrictions regarding handling of a dead body. uh, They're hesitant in a lot of ways, not just by what they're going to smell. And further, that tomb didn't need to be opened so Lazarus could get out. God could do that without opening the tomb. The tomb had to get over, had to be opened so that they could actually smell death. And Mary, you know, Mary's the practical, I mean, Martha's the practical one. Martha's the one that had to keep the kosher kitchen, you know, and so she's, she's really practical. And Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I mentioned this last week. The King James said, it stinketh. I love that. For he's been dead four days. Listen. She's thinking only shameful grave robbers would do that, would steal it. It's disrespectful. It's unnecessary. And further, the spices that we put on his body four days ago, that help. that's not helpful anymore. Really, only grave robbers would do that. But the glorious thing is Jesus is a grave robber of a different kind. And this comment that she makes to Jesus is just confirmation. She didn't really understand their earlier confirmation. Verses 20 through 26, she didn't really understand Jesus telling her he's going to raise her brother. Listen, in spite of what the mortician does to our remains... Nothing, absolutely nothing, no matter how good the mortician is, can keep us from decaying, keep our bodies from deterioration. Most of you, here at least if you're an adult, most of you here today, and I think all of you are living, you still know that as we get older, we deteriorate. And it just cranks up when we die. Unless Jesus can turn our corruption into incorruption. And we have that promise. Unless Jesus can turn our death into what He calls sleep. Unless Jesus can turn our sleep into resurrection. And He can do that too. For those who believe. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Well, we don't have exactly those words that Jesus said that to Martha, but he did say that to his disciples in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said about him being sick, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. His whole earthly ministry is about a display of the glory of God. We see that over and over in Scripture. When, when, when I've got several verses. I won't show them to you, but, but, but many times, especially in Matthew, Jesus performed some miracle. And what's the Bible say? The people glorified God. We see it over and over. Fundamental purpose of the Gospel of John is that the glory of God be revealed. While everybody present outside the tomb of Lazarus are about to behold this astonishing wonder, only those who believe will grasp something of the glory of God and the purpose of all of this. And so he prays. It's a wonderful prayer. He doesn't pray to ask God to make this happen. He begins his prayer by thanking God that it is going to happen. He lifted it up as I, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Apparently he's asked him to, to, to raise Lazarus. God does the work. I knew that you always hear me, but on account of the people. And so on account of the people... He prays this prayer. He prays this prayer, first of all, so that people can understand this intimate relationship that Jesus has with his Father. The prayer also assumes that Jesus has already asked for Lazarus' life. And all he must do is thank the Father for giving him the answer. Verse 11, you can go back to verse 11, also assumes the same thing. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'll go awaken him. The public nature of this prayer, he's not playing to the gallery as such, it's quite the reverse. Jesus is praying this prayer publicly to draw the hearers into his intimacy with his Father. And to demonstrate that Jesus does nothing by Himself. Obedient to His Father's will. He said that over and over and over. The Son may ask, the Father grants. We see that in Scripture. And so this prayer is audibly and evangelistically, in many ways, presented to this audience so that they may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has come from the Father. This whole event is just a further display of the glory of God. When he had said these things, contrast to the prayer most intended to, he intended for them to hear, Jesus now, with a loud voice of authority, Concludes this story. John 5, verse 25 says to us Truly, truly, I say to you, he's already said this several times in this gospel. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not just talking about Lazarus, he's talking about you believers out there too. Lazarus, come out! Augustine said that if he hadn't said Lazarus, he hadn't used the word Lazarus, then the entire cemetery would have been raised. It's gonna look like that one day. Lazarus doesn't even need to be commanded to come out. Once he's been made alive, he's gonna respond. <laughs> The irresistible grace. Once he's been made alive in that tomb, he's all wrapped up, and there's a little bit of light maybe. Those decomposed eyes have been made new, and there's a little bit of light possibly shining through the cloth that's over his eye. He just spent four days with Abraham and Moses. struggling to get free. His his legs are bound together, and so he probably even has to shuffle out of the tomb. Revived in nature, and Jesus has come out. Most public display of Jesus' awesome saving power. Proof of his ability not only to defeat human corruption, but to reverse the course of human corruption. Supernatural resurrection power of God in action. Something we can't understand. Stops the decay of the body. Stops the decay of that thing we call rigor mortis. And the muscles finally get tense and it's hard to even move a dead body. John MacArthur describes this best. I I could not come close. This power pours life. It's not on the screen. This power pours life into rotted organs. This power takes a bloodless heart and starts it beating again, pumping fresh blood to every organ and limb, creates blood out of nothing, takes sightless, decomposed eyes and gives them new tissue in order to see again, takes rotten brain tissue and gives it new power to think and feel and move and speak this is the power Jesus shows all people on this glorious day. Gives life to Lazarus. Proves beyond a shadow of doubt that he's God. The ability to give life belongs to God. Jesus speaks to a dead body as if Lazarus lived. Because he is. Romans 4, verse 17 tells us God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Alexander White was a 19th century preacher in Edinburgh, Scotland. He wrote a lot of character studies, did wonderful things. They're fruitful and useful. He did a study on Lazarus. Describes Lazarus very movingly. That thought it was interesting. He said Lazarus was already in heaven. He already had his harp. He was just getting ready to play on his harp in heaven when one of the angels came over and tapped him on the shoulder and said, The Master has further need of you. And Lazarus has the unthankful task of laying aside his heart and coming here to live with you folks. <laughs> he comes back. He hears, now he's a dead man, but he hears the voice of God. Do you hear that? What does Paul say about ourselves? we're we're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And he hears the voice of God. That's the same thing when the Word of God is preached to you or when preached to anyone. When the the Word of God is declared, when the Gospel is declared, that an audience that, that may be dead in their sins and trespasses, whoever in that audience may be dead in their sins and trespasses, hear the Word of God. And the Word of God... God operates through His Word and has the power to wake up dead people. That's what we call regeneration when the Word of God wakes up a dead soul. That dead soul is given life before they can believe. The Word of God speaks... Lazarus comes alive, then he comes forth. Then he moves. Glorious thing. He came out and those grave clothes were still on him. That expresses something else to us. Life comes through the gospel. Then... The work of sanctification begins. Loose him and let him go. It's the picture of what it is to remove our grave clothes. We are we we are made we're dead in our trespasses. We are made alive by the powerful word of God, and then. The rest of our lives, that's sanctification, the rest of our lives we're taking off our grave clothes. Loose them. Let them go. Begins the process of removing them. You see, all of us, all of us believers still have some grave clothes on. Hopefully God's in the process of removing them in your life. The work of sanctification is to overcome them, take them off. This is how Jesus can call forth a person dead and defeated in sin to new life in Him. He's still calling people today who are dead in their trespasses and sin and bringing them to new life in Him. He can do that today for you. I think it would help greatly to realize that our seemingly impossible circumstances are nothing to God. That was impossible. All those people there, even Martha and Mary, that was an impossible circumstance. Oh, you could have made him well while he was still sick, but you can't make him alive. It was an impossible situation for them. And we must understand in our hard and seemingly impossible circumstances... Those things are nothing to God. Some of you are going through those things right now. His power transcends our trouble. His power is not limited to our faithlessness either. And His power is not limited to our hopelessness. These people are hopeless. This can't happen. We won't ever see our brother again. Jesus has resurrection power, and He cannot only bring victory when we haven't given up hope. He cannot only bring victory when we still have a little bit of hope. He can bring victory to our lives even when all hope is gone. He did it here. Jesus was four days late, but He was right on time. God's will is sovereign. Don't give up hope. Even when it seems hopeless, God is in control. He has the power to resurrect your life once again. He has the power once again to bring deliverance and victory to your life. He may not even answer you until all hope is gone. There seems no way out but He will answer. That's the promise. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a song. During this time, I encourage you, if you need prayer, you have questions, you're in a hopeless point in your life, you need to talk to somebody about it. Pastor Greg and our elders will be in the back. We just encourage you to make your way back there while we sing. Spend some time with them. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We do thank You and praise You for this glorious display of resurrection glory. But Lord, You did that in my life back when I was an 18-year-old done that in so many of our lives to resurrect us who were dead in our trespasses and sins. We thank you and praise you for that. Father, we know you're still in that business. So do your work in the hearts and lives of your people here today. Move us from where we are right now to where you want us to be. For your glory and your glory alone. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Amen.